This week we're going to be covering chapter four. And so, um, so one of the things I loved about this chapter when comparing it to the weeks before, there's been little snippets here and there of seeing how Solomon adores his bride and how Jesus Christ looks at us. And so going through this and going through some of these details, um, what I love about it is that it's, it's going to be uh, a challenge, I think, for you guys to look at yourself this way. Because I know how I look at myself. Um, I make mistakes all the time. Um, I'm really, really hard on myself. Um, there are days that I really struggle with, like, why God would want to even use me. Um, why he would have, even have grace towards me after some of the things that I've done. Uh, towards him. And um, it just really blows my mind. And so reading through this chapter and going through this in detail, what it did for me is I look at this and say, really? Like Christ looks at me like that? Like he really does? And it changes my perspective. Um, Because I think that we have a problem in our life where uh, because of the mistakes that we've made, we define ourselves by those mistakes. Because of the ways that we've messed up or that we are weak and that we struggle, then we kind of take on that identity and that becomes part of who we are. And then we never get over that or think that we can serve God in the capacity that he wants us to serve him. And that's completely wrong. I mean, that's totally wrong. Like if that was the case, then Christ probably would have even died for you. I mean, that's, that's the reality of it, is that we are not defined by our mistakes, even though oftentimes we think we are. We are not. We are defined by what Christ has done for you. I mean, the fact that that God would die for you despite your mistakes, that he would die for you despite your weaknesses is unbelievable. But that's how much he cares about you. And so what we need to do is we need to get into the habit of, as we get into the word daily, weekly, every Sunday, every Wednesday, and we see what the Bible says about who we are in Christ, you need to start believing those things and stop believing the things that you think you are. That's what we need to do. I mean, ultimately, when we go through this, this is what you need to do. You need to stop thinking about yourself the way that you think about yourself. You need to start thinking about yourself the way that God thinks about you. And it will change everything. It will change your perspective on life. It will change the decisions you make daily. It will change absolutely everything. All right, so looking at this, we're going to be talking about how the king adores his bride. So the applications here, historically, the king adores his bride. Doctrinally, this is the church's and Israel's fellowship with Christ illustrated and then devotionally what the Lord Jesus Christ sees when he looks at us. So this is absolutely amazing. All right, so first thing here, and this is the majority of the chapter, we have the bridegroom speaks of the bride, and that's verses 1 through 15. And so we're going to chunk this up a little bit. We're going to do verses 1 through 5, take a look at this list, and then keep going through verse 6, 7, and 8, and all the way through. All right, so uh, verses 1 through 5. Give me five readers. One, two, three, four, five. All right, so let's go in that order. Each of you have that verse. Song of Solomon, chapter four, starting in verse one. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shown which came up from the washing, whereof every one bare twins, and none is barren among them. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of pomegranate within thy locks. Thy neck is like a tower of David, builded for an armory, whereon there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of wings. Thy two breasts are like two young roes that are twins, which feed among the lords. 
Okay, so right out of the gate, when, whenever I read this, I mean, first of all, I picture his description. And I'm thinking, okay, that's not that's not attractive. And which, by the way, at the very end, I'm going to show you someone has actually taken an artist rendering of everything that he said literally, and they sketched out what she would look like. It's terrible. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, despite that, going back to what the Bible says and going back to how to study the Bible, every word of God is pure. Every word has been specific, specifically chosen on purpose, for a purpose. And so as you kind of work through this, this is a weird description. I mean, this isn't something that we would describe someone looking like. But as you work through this, there are certain things that stand out in each verse. And so the first thing that we see here is he says, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. So he repeats it twice. Anytime in the Bible God repeats something, you always want to pay attention. Always. And so right out of the gate, he repeats that twice. And so when you take a look at that concept, we are fair and loved. We are fair and loved. When Christ looks at you, he thinks that you are fair. Now, what is a definition of fair? Give me a good one. Pretty. You're so pretty. <laughs> what else? Not opposite of unfair? Attractive. Beautiful. Beautiful to look upon. Someone that you take enjoyment looking at, that they are fair. They're, they have a fair countenance. They have a fair countenance. They're very beautiful. They're very pretty. So when he looks at you, that's what he thinks. And he says it twice. Twice. Like, for me, devotionally, when I look at myself, I am not fair. I'm not. I'm not beautiful. I am not pretty to God. Are you kidding me? Like, I screw up all the time. All the time. But what does he say? You're fair. You're beautiful. So who am I going to believe? Am I going to believe myself and what I think of me? Or am I going to believe what he thinks of me? And I'm not beautiful because of me. There's no way. Take a look over in, um, I mean, there's a couple things I want you to see here. Uh, so chapter one, look at chapter one of Song of Solomon, verse 15. Verse 15, it says, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair, thou hast dove's eyes. Now, this is her talking about him, by the way. This isn't him talking about her. When she looks at him, he, she says, you're fair, you have dove's eyes, which is the exact same thing that he said of her, by the way. And then look at chapter 2 and verse 10. So he speaks to her again. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Now go over to Ezekiel 16. Look at Ezekiel 16. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Ezekiel 16. Now, specifically in chapter 16, God's talking about the nation of Israel. But devotionally, this also applies to us as well. Ezekiel 16. <clears throat> Ezekiel 16, and take a look at, um, let's see here, verse 4. And as for thy nativity, <clears throat> in the day that thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither was, now, was thou wa washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied thee to do any of these unto thee to have compassion upon thee, but thou wast cast out in the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. So this is the nation of Israel from the perspective of the world. The world hated Israel from the very beginning. And so God looked at them as a little child that was born and the umbilical cord may have been cut, 
but it was not taken care of properly. And it wasn't washed, so it was still a mess from his mother's womb, from her mother's womb. And someone took that baby and just threw it out into an open field and left it to die. That's the nation of Israel. And by the way, devotionally, that's you and I. That's you and I in our sin. Because that's Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And so when you look at that, that's what the world thinks of Israel. That's what the world thinks of you. That's what the devil thinks of you. Take you, throw you out, leave you to die. I'm done with you. And yet look at verse 6. And this is what God did to the nation of Israel. And this is what he's done with us devotionally. And when I passed by thee, I saw thee polluted in thine own blood. And I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field, and thou hast increased and waxing great, and thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, thine hair is grown, whereas thou wast naked and bare. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. Then washed I thee with water, yea, I, washed, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee, and I anointed thee with oil. I clothed thee also with broidered work and shod thee with badger skin and I girded thee about with fine linen and I covered thee with silk I decked thee also with ornaments and I put bracelets upon thine hands and a chain on thy neck and I put a jewel on thy forehead and earrings in thine ears and a beautiful crown upon thine head Thou thus wast thou decked with gold and silver and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk embroidered work thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil and thou was exceeding beautiful and thou didst prosper into a kingdom and thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty for it was perfect through my comeliness which I had put upon thee saith the Lord God so the only reason why the nation of Israel was beautiful was because of God and how he adorned her how he took care of her how he blessed her how he caused her to increase and to multiply not because of herself that's us the only reason why we have any value whatsoever is because of God's love upon us. That's it. Because you have been immersed in the blood of Jesus Christ and washed clean from your sins, that's the only reason why you have any value. It's not because of who you are. It's not because of who you are. It's because God desired to love you. That's amazing. Because that's the tension that I feel daily. I don't deserve to be loved. I know who I am. And God's like, yeah, but I love you. And because I love you, you are of great value to me and you are beautiful. A lot of times Christians, as they walk with God and they grow in their relationship with God, they become uh, cocky and self-confident in who God has made them, thinking that it's because of them. It's because of them they have this great success in their Christian walk or in the Christian world. Not so. Not so. Because every single one of us on our best day still deserve hell. The only reason we have any value to God is because of his love upon us and because of his spirit that he's placed inside of us. That's it. That's it. Go back to Song of Solomon 4. So when he looks at us and he says, you are fair, my love, you are fair, he means it. And we got to believe him. And so I love that about God. I love that he does that with me. It helps me tremendously. And then he says, thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. So that's the exact same thing that she said of him as well, which is also an interesting dynamic too, because um, think about it from this perspective. The more time you spend with Jesus Christ, the more you look like him. The more time that you spend time in his word, 
the more you'll talk like him. You'll start to sound like him. You'll start to see things from his perspective. And that's really one of our number one problems that we have. The reason why we try to get you guys to be in the Bible constantly and to walk with God constantly is because when you see things your way, it doesn't work out. I've tried that, and it never works out, ever. I always get myself in more trouble. I always end up doing something that I regret, always, every single time. But every time I've done things God's way, and I start thinking the way that God thinks about things, it might be harder at times, but it always ends better, always. And I have zero regrets, zero. And so when she spends time with him, she says, you are fair, you have dove's eyes. And now he looks at her and says, yeah, but you're fair and you have dove's eyes because of their intimate relationship with one another. There are things in my relationship with my wife where I learn from her and she learns from me. And there are things that I love about her that I need to apply to my life that I'm lacking in and vice versa. And so I need her. And so the more time we spend together, the more we become of one heart and one mind. That's the way a marriage is supposed to work. You're not the same person anymore. When a person gets married, their life completely changes. And so they still have elements of who they were, but their life has completely changed. I mean, even one just practical example of this was, you know, um, you know, my wife was, uh, and she still is, she's a very outdoorsy person. And she loves to rock climb, she loves to do all that kind of stuff. But when we got married and we started having kids, guess what went away? Those things. There were parts of her personality that just left because she became a, a wife and a mother. Now, it doesn't mean that she doesn't like those things anymore. It's just those things went on the back burner. And when we have time to do those things again, we're going to do them again. But her identity began to change because of her life and our lives being combined together and us having children and raising a family. Your life changes. Who you are, your personality, your likes, your dislikes, everything about you, it begins to change when you're united with another human being. And that's why a lot of marriages don't work because they try to hold on to who they are and they don't mesh their lives together and become one And they can't become one mind, and so then there's this constant tension of fighting and bickering and being bitter towards one another. And it just doesn't work that way. When you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you will change. You must change. You have to change. If you don't change when you enter into a relationship with Christ, you're going to have big problems. Big problems. Because who you are is not who God is. And he wants to grow you up and mature you and to nurture you into his own image. He wants you to become like him. Which is not meaning that he's taking anything away from you. Are you kidding? No, not at all. He's taking who you are and he's forming you into his image. And that's how it's supposed to work. Which is why a lot of us, we struggle in our Christian walk because we don't want to let go of who we are to become the people that God wants us to be. So this is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And then as far as the dove's eyes are concerned, I mentioned this a little bit, um, but the more time you spend with Christ, the more from his perspective you'll see. You'll start to see things the way that he sees. And if you look up dove in the Bible, um, in Psalm 55, 6, it talks about how uh, a dove is correlated with rest. Um, In Matthew chapter 3, in verse 16, it talks about how the dove is likened unto the Spirit of God. And uh, it also talks in Matthew 10, 16 that doves are harmless. And so your eyesight will be changed, and you will seek for peace and rest. And you will see things like the Spirit of God sees things, and you will be absolutely harmless to people. You will only want people's benefit. So that's just a really, really neat correlation there, too. All right, now on to the hair. Let's look at the hair. All right, so we have the hair as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Can you imagine 
combing or brushing out a flock of goats. It'd be absolutely terrible. Absolutely terrible. Just kidding. Okay, so when it comes to a flock of goats, uh, go back to their culture and think about this. Flock of goats, flock of sheep, what are they? And how important are they within a family, within their culture? And why are they important? Anybody? Sophia? Well, like back in that time, that was like part of your like, property and mm-hmm. it showed like your, like, uh, really, yeah, your love. Yeah. Yeah, because goats and sheep, what do they produce? Wool? <laughs> Wool? Milk? Meat? Lots of different things. And so if you had a flock of goats, and by the way, Mount Gilead is one of the best places to go and feed your flocks. They are well-fed and well-nourished and well-cared for. And so you have this flock that's healthy. I mean, think about that daily. If, if your herd was your sustenance, that it was everything that sustained your life, that sustained your family, and you looked out upon a herd on Mount Gilead, what would you think? What would you think? If you saw a well-fed, nourished herd feeding on Mount Gilead and it was yours, what would you think? Pride, very pride, proudful about it. Why? They look good. <laughs> they look good, yeah. And you have stuff to feed your family, take care of your substance, to take care of your servants, to take care of other people. I mean, have you ever gotten like a massive paycheck? And some of you massive might mean like <laughs> 50 bucks. <laughs> like there are times where you've had money where you're like, oh my gosh, I actually have money to spend. You know what I mean? You know how you feel when that happens? I know it might be rare, but you know how you feel when that happens? You're like, huh, I feel like I can finally breathe a little bit. That's how I felt when I got my tax refund. And then it was gone, and then it left. (laughs) But I feel at peace. I feel like there's a sense of security. I feel like there's a sense of of worth. I feel like I, I don't have to, like if... If I'm in a situation where, because we've been there, there's been times where we, we, we tend to live paycheck to paycheck, but there have been times where we don't have money to spend on things and there are certain things that we need. I hate that. I absolutely despise that because I want to provide for my family and I don't want to go into debt in order to provide for my family. So when I have enough money to feed my family and take care of all the stuff that I have, or if I get an unexpected medical bill and I have money set aside to pay for that, I'm like, oh, I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried about it. And so I look at this and how he looks at her and he looks at her as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Now, some of you, and I think you know this, but like if your hair is not taken care of and it just gets nasty, how does that affect your appearance? Some of you, not so much. (laughs) I mean, there are some people that can't afford to take care of themselves. Am I right? And some of the things you can see, you can tell by the way they take care of their hair, that they can't take care of themselves. And then you immediately have an opinion about them that is not that great. Or maybe you feel sorry for them. When God looks at you and I, we are well nourished. We are cared for. When he looks at us covered by his blood, we're entered in a relationship with him. He has peace. He has peace. He, he has comfort. He has security in, in our relationship. Or at least he should, by the way. Because we're walking with him. We're in fellowship with him. Because that's the picture here. She is in love with him. He is in love with her. And when that happens on the right scale, then when God looks at you, he doesn't have to be worried. And so that's a great question to ask yourself. When God looks at your life, is he worried? Is he concerned about you? Is he? 
does he look at you and say, oh, things could be so much better. And you still have this mess that you've not taken care of and you've got this and and uh, things could be so much better. I mean, that's Jesus Christ in, in looking at Jerusalem. When they rejected him, he went out outside of Jerusalem and he was weeping. And he's like, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You, if only you knew the things that are for your peace, but now they're hid from your eyes because you rejected me. There are too many Christians oftentimes. This is what they do. They push Christ away. And in pushing Christ away, they're a mess. And he's like, I want to help you, but you're not. I can't because you don't want me. And so when God looks at you, is he at peace? Can he feel a sense of security because you are submissive to him, that you love him, that you're walking with him, that you want to be with him? All right, next, talk, moving on to the teeth. Verse 2. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which came up from the washing, whereof everyone bear twins, and none is barren among them. So this is really interesting. So once again, flock of goats, flock of sheep, same thing. But he says a flock of sheep that are even shorn. Now, I laughed when I saw this because I pictured like a flock of sheep where some rookie came by with just, you know, you know, razor and just went and just started, you know, just looked all jacked up. I mean, they were not. He's like, ah, oh, that's not exactly what I expected. Um, I don't know why. That was just in my head. Sorry. But it was even shorn. The, the job was done right. That when you look out on the sheep, that all the wool was gotten off of the sheep properly, that we're going to have enough for to sell or to do whatever with, uh, and that they were washed because after, I mean, sheep get super dirty, by the way, super, super dirty. And so they're washed, they're clean, they're even cut. Everything looks proper and in its place and in its order. God is a God of order, by the way. God is a God of order. And so if you struggle with order in your life, then... That's something that you really need to take a look at because if God is in your life, he will be increasingly moving your life to a life of more of order. And not necessarily OCD. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about being crazy that this pen is off a millimeter and then you need to get it back. I'm not talking about that. Some of you, you have that problem. And that's just a whole other issue. But what I'm saying is, is that when it comes to God, there's a proper order to things. And when things are put in order, they are beautiful. I mean, just take a look at landscaping. I mean, that's what's going on right now this season. There are some houses trashed. I mean, you look at them and you're like, oh, they don't take care of their property at all, right? And there's others you're like, wow, that's impressive. I'm impressed by some of the people and what they do for their landscaping. Absolutely impressed. It looks great. It looks beautiful. It looks in order. And so our life as Christians, we are not going to have everything in order all the time. That's not what we're talking about. But we're in the process of taking care of things because of who God is. We belong to God. And so there should always be an order. Always should be an order. Even shorn, washed, and orderly. All right, let's move on to the next verse. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of a pomegranate within thy locks. So we have lips like scarlet with speech that is comely. Speech that is comely. Let's go over to Proverbs. Go to Proverbs 10. Proverbs 10. Proverbs 10. There's a few verses in here that are a great illustration of what we're talking about here. Lips of scarlet, speech that is comely. Proverbs 10. And take a look at, we're going to look at verse 13, 19, 21, and 32. 13. In the lips of him that hath understanding, wisdom is found. But a rod is for the back of him that is void of understanding. So lips that contain wisdom means you have understanding. Look at verse 19. 
In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. So if you're a talker, there's an often, often chance that you can get yourself into a whole lot of trouble. Be careful with your words. Be careful with your words. Look at verse 21. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for want of wisdom. And then look at verse 32. The lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked speaketh frowardness. See, the more time you spend with God, the more you learn how to speak and how to have discretion. You know, that's one thing with my kids right now that we're really working through is that sometimes they will say things that they don't necessarily mean, but we just got to find out first <laughs> where they say something and we're like, oh, yeah, we don't talk like that. Or sometimes like Lily, and we've been working on this with her ever since kindergarten, because sometimes she can say something that if you just read the words, it would be fine. But it's how she says them. <laughs> she says them and it's like totally like bad attitude or like she's, you know, being sarcastic or something like that. And we even get on and she's like, I didn't mean it that way. Dude. It's the way you said it. It's not what you said, but it's the way you said it. So devotionally for us in our life, is the exact same thing. The more time you spend with Christ, the more time you spend in the Word, you learn how to speak. You learn how to speak the right way. You learn how to speak with the right tone. And that's very, very important. Very important. So we should speak good, clean things and truth and love, especially when it comes to the gospel, especially. You have something that could feed many people and that we need to do it. And then temples like a pomegranate. Now, this is interesting. Um, so pomegranate, um, how many of you like pomegranates? I think they're delicious. A lot of work, but delicious. Yeah, worth it every time. Okay, so in Exodus, this is interesting. In Exodus 28, we don't have time to read this one, but in Exodus 28, the bottom of the garments of the robes of the priests, it says they have pomegranates on them. I'm like, what? I didn't even notice that before. Now, it's not real pomegranates. They're woven, so they look like pomegranates. But still, pomegranates are on the bottom of the robes of the priests. And then you have in 1 Kings 7, 18, and 20, it talks about in the temple that pomegranates are part of the temple's design as far as the pictures, the carvings. So pomegranates are there. And then in Numbers, uh, pomegranates are what they brought from the promised land. And same with Deuteronomy. So it's a picture of fruitfulness. Now, here's something that's quite interesting. I never thought about this before until I read it and I thought about it. And I'm like, hmm. It's actually true. So the fruit of the Spirit. A lot of translations call it fruits, but it's the fruit. It's singular. But yet, even though it's singular, there are many parts of the fruit of the Spirit. Kind of like a pomegranate. So the pomegranate is a type of the fruit of the Spirit. It is a fruit within itself, but inside there are individual fruits that are part of it. I thought that was interesting. So you can take that. Pass along. All right, pomegranate. So when I look at this and I see this and I knowing that it's part of the fruit of the Spirit, I think about how that we need to have minds that are focused, that are righteous, that are strengthened, that are prosperous. And with it being an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit or a type of the fruit of the Spirit, that when we are thinking correctly, when we're walking with God, then we're going to have strength. We're going to be focused. We're going to do things that are righteous. We're going to be very prosperous because we're thinking rightly. We're thinking rightly. All right, let's go back. Chapter 4. Song of Solomon. All right, so we talked about the pomegranate. Then we got verse 4. Thy neck is like the tower of David, builded for an armory, whereon there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. We don't have time to turn to some of these ones, but in Deuteronomy 31, in the Bible, you'll see this phrase all the time, that stiff-necked. What does that mean, to be stiff-necked? Mm -hmm. Arrogant, prideful, stubborn. A lot of us have stiff Next, because we're very stubborn people. Anybody, that's you? There's a few. My wife Sam was like, "Woo!" 
<laughs> so we can be stubborn people. Now here's the deal. How do you correct a stiff neck? You break it. You become broken. That's why a couple years ago our theme for camp was broken. Because until we're willing to humble ourselves and to be broken by the Lord, you're never going to grow. The moment you stubborn up and stiffen your neck against God, you're going to be in big trouble. Big trouble. It may not be that day, but eventually it's going to come. I can't stand it when my kids do this with me. I can't stand it when I'm trying to talk to them or correct them and they walk away from me or they don't look at me or I'm grabbing him like I'm grabbing Lucas by the arm because I know that he, what he wants to do. So I'm just holding him by his arm and he starts to do this. He starts to pull away from me. I can't stand that because I'm like, no, just just submit, kid. That's, me. That's what I want to do. I'm like, I I'm, I'm want to talk to you. Stop pulling away from me. It happens all the time, all the time. There's something inside of our nature that we are just inherently stubborn. We are. And you've got to know that about yourself. When God comes in and convicts you, ten, our, our tendency is just to put up a fight. We want to almost right away because of who we are. That is terrible. Learn to yield. Learn to yield. Learn to give up when it comes to God. Learn to give up. Because when we are finally broken, then we can actually have a neck like an armory tower. They're full of bucklers and shields of mighty men. Then we can have that. But unless you're willing to yield yourself, it's never going to occur. Before you can be strong, you've got to be broken and submissive. You've got to. You've got to. All right, and then moving on to the breasts. Verse 5. Thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Now, this is interesting. Once again, going back to what we said at the very beginning, we are very perverted in our thinking. So when you read something like that, we tend to go the perverted route. But here's the deal. When you think about this... He correlates the two breasts to young rows that are twins and the feed among lilies. Um, so when it comes to this, I immediately think of sustenance. I immediately think of sustenance. Because you think about with any animal, you know, an animal's not, you know, given their kid formula. Right? I mean, I've never seen a calf drink formula. I've just never seen it. Now, I'm not saying it's not possible because there might be some issues where you've got to go and do that. But I'm just saying, naturally speaking, that doesn't occur. It goes to the mother, it goes to the udder, and it drinks, and it's sustained. If a baby does not eat milk, what's going to happen? It's going to die. It will not survive. It will not survive. And so when Christ looks at you and looks at I, when we are in fellowship with him, when we're walking with him, he sees health. He sees nourishment. He sees growth. He sees potential. And when it talks about two young rows that are twins, they're exactly the same. They're balanced. They're even keeled. They're not extreme. They're not extreme one way or the other. They are balanced. So you getting into the Word of God, which, by the way, is a picture of milk early on in your Christian walk, and you, you are sustained by the Word of God in milk, you'll be able to grow into someone that can feed other children and other people. That's the design. That's discipleship. That's how it's supposed to be. If a person, I mean, that's why Hebrews even talks about there comes a time where you ought to be teachers, but because you're not, you got to go back and you got to drink milk again. That's weird. It should never happen that way. As you guys grow in your walk with God, you should be able to grow up enough to start to teach other people. And that's very valuable to God. He calls that out for her. So, and then feeding among lilies, that's where Christ feeds. It's a picture of the word of God as well. And uh, that's very, very important. All right. So moving on, verse 6, verse 6. 
Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Very simply, until Christ returns, because that's what's going on here, the day break. Anytime you see a phrase like that, day break, is talking about the second coming of Christ. Until Christ returns, we must daily be reminded of our Savior and our salvation. Our salvation. How many of you remember the junior high memory verse for the, uh, for the ministry? Colossians. On your paper it says three. It's supposed to be two, by the way. Colossians. Two, six, and seven. Anyone know it? First word. <laughs> yes, as ye have therefore received Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Yes. Established. <laughs> all right all right close enough time to review colossians 2 6 and 7 very very important as ye have therefore received christ jesus the lord so walk ye in him very important the moment of your salvation require great humility admitting that you're wrong and he's right about everything and then calling upon him to save you because you can't save yourself because you're helpless all right so at the moment of salvation you are absolutely helpless guess what Every day thereafter, you are helpless. Every day. Every day thereafter in your Christian walk, you are helpless. You need him. You need him to save you every single day. Not for salvation, not for eternity purposes, but every single day. Our problem is that we, God, please save me. And then the next day we're like, I got this. No, no, that is terrible. You will get yourself into loads of trouble that way. Every day you're helpless. Every single day. Every single day. So I love this reminder in here. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Myrrh and frankincense. Those are two of the scents. We've already covered them. Talking about Jesus Christ. They were present in his birth. They were present in his death. Present in his burial. It was all about the life of Jesus Christ. You need, you need to never forget the gospel. Never forget your salvation. Never forget what Christ has done for you. Never. Because you need him every single day. Every day. Verse 7, thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. Oh my goodness, this is so convicting. Because when I look at this, I think you're kidding me, God. Of course there's a spot in me. I am defiled. That is who I am. I am a sinner. But when he looks at you, you've been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is no spot in you. None. None. So stop. Stop letting your mistakes keep dragging you down. They've been paid for. They don't stick to you anymore. So stop defining yourself by your mistakes. Go over to Jude 24. Jude 24. There's a lot of verses we could look on at this one, but I want to look at this one. Jude 24. If we'd meditate on this one, oh my goodness, look out. Someone read it. Jude 24. Go ahead, Haley. Okay, if we would just believe this, our lives would change immediately. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. Okay, in our life, we keep falling and falling and falling 
and falling and falling and falling. And we don't realize that there's someone right next to you saying, would you just please take my hand? I will help you. No, I got this. Boom. Take my hand. No, I got this. Boom. Your nose is getting bloody. I don't care. I got this. (laughs) This is why we are insane. We are insane. As humans, we are insane. Every day, God is right there with a hand reached out to us to help us walk. And if we would just humble ourselves and accept his help, we'd be able to stand up and actually start to walk with strength and walk properly. That's our problem. That's our problem. He's able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. Faultless. Man, when we get there, we're going to be able to stand in confidence, not because of who we are, but because of what he's done for us. So we are beautiful to Jesus Christ and completely blameless, spotless, and undefiled. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. Verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. I'm actually going to read... Yeah, we'll just do eight. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shinir, from Herm and Herman, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of leopards. So this is an interesting one. I'm like, why is this why did he bring this in, into play? So when I was looking at this, I, I thought about this. Um, I've been in a couple of circumstances where I've stood on top of like high hills or high mountains of some kind and you just look at the view and it is absolutely breathtaking. I remember one time we went down uh, to summer camp, it was years ago, uh, down to West Virginia and um, it got to the point where it got too expensive, we couldn't do it anymore. But when we were down there, we were rappelling off of a cliff and the cliff was about 200 feet. But there's this one spot that we'd sit and on this cliff, you would look out and there you see the entire valley and, and there was the river that we were going to go on a couple days later and there were like these giant clouds in the sky. I mean, baby blue sky. It was amazing. I will never forget that. And you try to take a picture, but pictures don't do jack. You look at it and you're like, that's not, that not the same thing as what I just saw. It's amazing. Amazing. And so when Christ is with us and he's walking with us and we're walking with him, he desires to show you things that are absolutely astounding. He wants to take you places. He wants to teach you things. He wants to show you this and show you that. I mean, okay, I mean, picture it this way. Put yourself in God's shoes for a second. You're God and you love this thing that you've created, mankind. But you're God. So you have the ability to do like anything. And... I know how my kids get when they're excited because when they're excited about something, guess what they do? They're like, dad, come here. Dad, I got to talk to you. Dad, I got to. Okay. So I think of Christ that way. He's like, Stephen, come here. I've got to show you this. And if this is God, is you're like, oh my gosh, God, that is amazing because he can do whatever he wants. So he shows you these things and it's just astounding because he wants to share it with you. He's not holding it to himself. He wants to share all these amazing things with you. And so you look at each of these mountains here. Lebanon means white or strength. So God wants to show you how pure he is and how strong he is. He wants to put that on display for you so you can have comfort in those things. Amana, it's integrity, truth, firm, constant. God wants you to be able to trust him. So he wants to show you how truthful he is, how firm he is, and how constant he is. So that way you can always count on him. He wants to show you shinir, which is a lantern, or it means also a light that sleeps. He wants to show you how he can be a light for you in any darkness that you come across. 
He wants to show you Hermon. Hermon is actually the sanctuary of Baal. It has been for, for many, many years prior to this. It was the highest place in Israel, and people would go there, and they would worship false gods, which means that Hermon was devoted to destruction. So God wants to show you, see this? This high place, which was meant for beauty, people have defiled it, and now I am going to destroy it. And he wants to show you his strength, his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, so you can understand him better. The lion's dens. I immediately think that's the dwelling places of Satan and his devils. It's Daniel 6, 1 Peter 5, 8. He wants to take you there and show you the lions and show you where they are. And then this last one, I thought this was neat, the mountains of leopards. So if you look up leopards in the Bible, I put in there Jeremiah 5, 13, Daniel 7, Hosea 13, Revelation 13. So these places, you find out that the mountains of leopards, so leopards, they're known for studying their prey. And there are high places that they choose to study their, their prey and then find the right time to attack them. So when I look at this, this is the places where the enemies of God watch and observe. There are places in your life that they perch up and they look upon you as far as where you're going, where you've come from, and where you're going to be. And they know the right place and time to attack. God wants to show you those things. He wants to make sure that you are aware of the enemies and how they are studying you and your weak spots and their dens where they dwell. He wants to show you his strength. He wants to show you his ability to overcome all those things. That is amazing. And as you walk with God and he shows you that stuff, it gives you even more confidence in him. And it shows you how much he loves you, how much he cares for you, and how much we should love him. He is with you every step of the way, guiding, guiding us, protecting us, fighting for us, and helping us. I love it. Verse 9 and 10. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is love than wine, the smell of thine ointments than all spices. The depth of Jesus' love for you is unfathomable. He loves you so deep, you can't even understand it. The only way you can understand it is by dwelling and chewing on the gospel, on different passages of scripture. When I read like Romans 8, 38 and 39, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Death, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, or any other creature, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. We are so quick to withhold our love from someone who loves us so much. I don't get it. I don't know why we do it. I don't know why we do it. Verse 11. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue, and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. Our speech and our scent should be saturated with Christ's words. Saturated. As you walk with him and spend time with him, you put off an aroma of him for other people. Look at verse 12 through 15. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates. There it is again. With pleasant fruits, campfire with spikenard, spikenard with, with, and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices. A fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. Our life should be undefiled and sanctified from the world so it can yield righteous plants and fruits that glorify God. When it talks about in verse 12, a garden enclosed is my sister, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. That means you are undefiled. There are way too many of us that are letting the world in too much. When you let the world in, it is polluting your garden. Remember, your garden, you reap what you sow. Galatians, right? You reap what you sow. 
And when you let the world in, it then sows its seeds in your garden. And now your garden is not a place that is full of righteous fruits to glorify God. Be careful what you let into your garden. Be very, very careful. Be very careful. And lastly, I love this one. This kind of hits our our last point here, verse 16. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon my garden that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. So when the winds of life blow, and they will, the aroma of godliness should flow out. It should. It should. It should flow out. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. We'll turn to two more places and then we'll be done. 2 Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians, right next to First Corinthians. Just trying to help you out a little bit. Second Corinthians four. When the winds of life blow, the aroma of godliness should flow out. Second Corinthians four. Take a look at verse. Let's see here. Eight. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. What he's saying here, I've read these verses for many years and I've always been very confused by them, but this is simply what he's saying. When you live righteously and the pressure is turned on because you are living righteously, something comes out of your life. Now what he says here in verse 11, for we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So when you are persecuted, when you are given a hard time for your faith, when you stand up for God and people make fun of you, there's two ways it could go. One is that it will glorify God, whatever your response might be. The other is it glorifies yourself. And when you choose to continue to glorify God in those circumstances, your testimony is a display of God and his righteousness in the life of Jesus Christ in the gospel. And some of us are afraid to even get in those circumstances. But if you already know what the outcome is going to be and you're going to choose to take a stand, why not get into those circumstances? Because, I mean, Christ had to die in order to give you life, by the way. Like he had to do that. He put himself in that circumstance for you to give you life. When we know that if we put ourselves in circumstances and situations where we're going to be persecuted for what we believe and we shy away from them, God cannot be glorified. He won't be. He can't be because we refuse to put ourselves in that circumstance. Sometimes there are people that will not hear the gospel until you take a stand for Jesus Christ and not because of your stand. No, not because of your words but because you were willing and then the result and how you reacted is what gave them the gospel. That's how this works out. That's what Paul said. Death works in us, but life in you. It puts it on display. That's why back in the day when, when Christians were martyred over and over and over again, people wanted Christians dead. I mean, they wanted them dead. How they died brought people to salvation. Remember the centurion that stood at the foot of the cross? After Jesus died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Not before, after. It's the same thing in our life. It's the exact same thing. And then lastly, 
Jesus Christ should be able to enter into our lives at any time and be able to find pleasant fruits that are sweet to his soul. That's what it says in Song of Solomon 4. It says, Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. Read these verses later. In Matthew 21 and Luke 13, Jesus sees a fig tree and he expects to find fruit on it. And he goes, and what does he find? No fruit. And you know what he says? That tree is cursed and it withers up and it dies. And the disciples are like, what? Just like that. It's in your Bible. (laughs) Jesus at any point in time should be able to walk into your life and find fruit that glorifies him. But here's what happens a lot. Jesus is coming. All right, let's get to work. (laughs) This happens in our house, right? Company's coming over. Let's clean. Because we don't want company to come over and find there's messes everywhere. Okay. God shows up unannounced. And he should be able to show up unannounced in your life. And it's not something you can say, okay, let's just shove everything under the bed and in the closet. Because he kind of sees through walls and beds. He knows where everything is. He should be able to walk in at any point in time and you're ready to receive him. He should be able to walk in at any point in time and ask you to do something and you're ready to do it because you've been walking with him all along. That's the point. That's the point. So that is the bride's heart towards the groom. Amazing stuff. Convicting stuff. Let that stuff settle. And I'll show you the picture. We don't have time. I'll show you the picture of the beautiful lady on Wednesday and on Sunday because it's absolutely hilarious. Absolutely hilarious. You know what? I'm just put it out in the group me. I'll put it in the group me. Yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you for these things. My goodness, it's so convicting. And so, God, I pray that we would just yield ourselves to you. And I pray that you'd help us. We love you very much. Thank you for loving us. And thank you for loving us this way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.